Father God, when we come to you every Sunday, we come earnestly seeking to hear from you, not to hear from a man, not to hear opinions or thoughts, but to hear from your word and to see you and your glory. The magnitude of this, Father God, could not be greater for us individually, for us personally, for us corporately as a church body. So I pray that you would be very gracious this morning and that you would come with great power by your Holy Spirit and open the eyes of our hearts, that you would give me, Father God, a, a, a um, clear view of the truth, keep error from my mouth, keep anything that is of the flesh out of my mouth, and that you would do the same to every one of my friends here who want to hear from you today. We want to hear your voice in the scriptures, and we need to see your love, your love as a father. So come and do that today in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. amen. Now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my sight and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. What does it mean to be a child of God? What does that mean? What does it mean to be a son or daughter of the God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, to be his children? And I think we can use phrases, especially in Christian culture, so often that they become trivial and mundane, and this is one of them. I mean, think about it. Is there anything like this in the world? The almighty God who created everything, who sustains everything, such that not even a single molecule will flash out of existence unless he decides for it to do so. And yet we go to him, we call him Abba Father. Dad. In a way, our earthly fathers, myself included as a dad, are pale shadows of. And Isaiah 43, which is what I just read, the first seven verses, is our heavenly father talking to us. 
about what he feels about us. And it's stunning what he says. But before we look at that, and we will, we need to ask a question of what it means for God to be our Father. We need to look at how is it that we become children of God? How does that happen? And to do that, I would like to go into the book that we're reading, we're going to right now, the book of John, chapter 1, verse 9. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, grab them, open to John 1, 9. While you're doing that, last week, if you recall, if you were here, uh, we saw that John the Baptist was sent from God the Father to bear witness to the light. And uh, that light was the very light that shines into the darkness in verse 5 before this. And it's the light that is the light of men in verse 4. That's the light that John is referring to. And that light is none other than Jesus Christ. The light is the embodiment of God in his glory encountered and embraced in his Son. Paul calls it the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ in 2 Corinthians 4. And this week we are moving into verse 9. And we're going to return to the light. We were looking at a, a witness to the light. Now we're returning to the light and we're going to see the relationship between the light that is Christ Jesus and why is it that he shines in the darkness. Why does the light in John 1 shine in the darkness? We're going to see why here. So here's John 1, starting with verse 9. We'll read through 13. John says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Well, There's a lot there, so we're going to take our time and work through this. So John begins this statement with uh, this passage with a statement about the light. He says something about the light here. He's already told us that this light is uh, a light that was at the beginning. It's the eternal word, which we know as Jesus Christ. It is the light of men. And he calls him here the true light. That's the title that he gives the light here. It is the, he is the true light. And the question we should ask when we get to something like this, a statement like this, is, is what does he mean here? What, why does he say this? The implication, of course, is that there must be other lights in the world. That's the only reason you'd make a distinction about the truthfulness of this light. There must be other lights in this world. But of none of those lights can this be said that they are true like he is. He and he alone is this true, the light, the light that gives light to everyone because he is the light of men. There is no light like him. There is no true light that is true in the way that he is. He is the only one by which we can see all things in the world. He's the only light that does that, which is a very strong distinction for John to make. 
But what's even more surprising than him making that distinction, that there is a true light in the world, that there is an objectively true reality in Jesus, is what he says next. This is wild. John tells us that the light who gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Now, if that doesn't shock us, we need to take a step back and recognize he didn't need to do that. He did not need to come. The light could have simply left us to our darkness. And listen to me, he would have done us no wrong. He didn't owe us a thing. He wasn't obligated or constrained to come. But guess what? He did. He came. And the great tragedy is how the world responded to his coming. If you look at the next passage, John says the light was in the world, a world that was made through him. In other words, this world belongs to him. It's it's his. He made it. And yet, though his, his loving and gracious fingerprints are on every sunset and every sunrise that you've ever seen, the smile of every baby, just hanging out with Eleanor earlier, Mackenzie's baby, smiling away, um, the laughter of every child that you've ever heard, the sound of an ocean wave breaking, or the scent of an evergreen tree, despite all of those things that show his fingerprints the world, it says, did not know him. Now think about this. The light comes into the world. The world looks at the light and does not recognize the source and the wellspring from which every joy they've ever had springs. They just saw a man. They saw a man, and John goes further and says in verse 11 that it's not even just the world globally even his own people did not receive him. It's not just humanity broad strokes. The people of God, the people of Israel, through whom God had chosen to bring the light of the world in, did not see him. They had the prophecies, they had the oracles of God, they had the scriptures, and yet they too did not recognize the light when he came in. They didn't receive him, they didn't believe in his name, which we see show up repeatedly throughout John. This is a recurring theme of John, that his own people can't see him. But it's important for us to recognize that this isn't isolated to the people of Israel. This is true about every human being. We're no different. The very reason that this line is in here is to show us the futility that even they, with all the evidence that they had in the scriptures, everything they needed to see this light, objectively, even they didn't see it. Their minds and their hearts were so darkened that seeing, they could not see, and hearing, they could not hear, and we all would have responded the same way. But what is shocking in addition to this is that what we read next, verse 12, explicitly tells us that despite this, this devastating, like pervasive unbelief across the entire world, despite that, somehow there were those who actually did believe and receive Jesus. Not everybody responded to Jesus with rejection. Not everybody responded to Jesus with unbelief. There were those who, when they saw him for who he really is, they believed in him. And John says that for those who did believe in him, 
the light gave to them the right to become children of God. So this is what the light does. This is the light's purpose for shining into the world. He enters the world. He's rejected by the world broadly. He's rejected by his own people. And yet some believe, and John says, those people who believe, they become God's children. What verse 12 tells us is that when someone receives the light, receives the light for who he is, believes in the light, Jesus, believes in Jesus in his name, he says that we are given this extraordinary privilege, this extraordinary right. He calls it to become the children of God. In other words, when we're born naturally in this world, we are not born as a child of God naturally. We're not. Um, we are not by nature children of God, even though we are his offspring according to Acts 17 because we bear his image we do not have any right to be called a son of God or a daughter of God until that right is given to us, until that is granted to us by the Father. And it says right here, that happens when we believe in the light. This is adoption language. Being given the right to be in a family is adoption language. And that's what John is getting at by using these words. He's talking about a, a, a dramatic change in our status as human beings. It's, it's a massive paradigm shift of who we are. Our identity in the world is no longer a person. It is a son or daughter of the living God. Galatians 3.26 says it clearly, for in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. Galatians 4, 4 through 5 when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Adoption language is all over the New Testament. You can hardly go 20 verses without running into some sort of implication from this adoption reality. And the reason is because we are not by default children of God. In fact, Ephesians 2, 3 tells us we were born as children of wrath. Those are the words the Bible uses to describe humanity in its fallen state. We were born in sin. For example, Psalm 51, 5 tells us that we were inclined from our very birth towards broken and sinful pursuits. We know, I mean, everybody knows we ought to do good things. We ought to do right things. But the inclination of our heart, the, the, the urges we fight to do those good and right things, the inclinations are to be selfish, are to do things that benefit us personally, even if they happen to cost somebody else in the process. And this is a universal human experience. We know this is a universal human experience. Go back and serve in kids if you have trouble recognizing this. It is a universe. You don't have to teach a kid to disobey. Why is that? You have to teach them to do everything else. You don't have to teach a kid to disobey. Even the sweetest child knows naturally how to break the rules because slavery to self and desires, which is what sin is, is as natural to the human condition as breathing. 
And this is the reason that we were, when we were born into the world, we were not part of God's family. We can see objectively that we weren't. Adoption is a right that is given to us by God through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's amazing news because if I'm honest with you, just reflecting inwardly right now, I don't know where you're at, but I have never in my life deserved, not even for a millisecond, to be called a son of God. I hope that you feel some of that for yourself, that I don't deserve it. I could never earn that right. That is a privilege that is so far beyond me that it is preposterous for it to be given to me, yet it is in this passage. In simply receiving Jesus Christ for who he really is, and trusting in his name, in his worth, in his value, in his glory, God grants us this extraordinary gift of being in his family. We are forgiven. We are justified before him. We are sanctified by his grace. And all of those things are designed with the purpose of placing us into our father's hands as his precious children. That's why those things happen. But what's more surprising than even that is John's statement after this. So John just tells us that we are adopted into God's family. But what he says in verse 13 takes that adoption and puts a completely different spin on it. And I don't know if you you saw it when we read it initially, but he shifts gears dramatically. He's begun verse 12 by saying that God gave us the right, the authority in the Greek. That's what that means in the Greek, the privilege to become God's children, which is adoption. And then he takes this hard right turn and says, it's actually more than adoption. It's actually even deeper than adoption. It goes further than adoption. He says in verse 13, that those who really are, and we can go back to that. Let's go back to the original passage so people can see it. Those who really are God's children, those who really belong to him, are not born of blood. They are not born of the will of the flesh. They are not born of the will of man, but get this, they are born of God. They are born of God, which is way different than simply a change in legal status. John is referring to something more than an external change. This is massive. This is something that is so powerful on the internal realities in our heart. It's a fundamental change at the very core of our being. Verse 13 is talking about something deep and profound, so deep and so profound that the only words that John could use use to describe this reality is to say we were born of God. Born of God. God literally brought us into being as his children. And this isn't to make light of adoption. The adoption reality in this text is massive. It is a necessary and critical part of God's purpose. But it says that underneath that adoption is some other operating reality. And that's what verse 13 talks about. That something is us being brought into existence as a son or daughter of God. And God wants, uh, John wants us to be very, very clear about this. We did not do this on our own. That's why he stresses in this verse, he, he says, it's not like being born of blood. And in, in view, he has like 
ethnic or familial or, or, or maybe like who, who your family lineage is. It's not like that. It's not like being born of the will of the flesh, which all of us know firsthand because that's how we came into this world. We were born naturally. It's not like that. And then the third thing he says here is actually the most surprising one. He says it's not like being born of the will of man. Will of man. And what he has in view here is something that is brought about by the will of a human being. In other words, John wants us to understand that this born of God experience isn't something that comes about because of human willpower or ingenuity or intellect. We cannot bring this into reality by sheer decisionality. It doesn't work like that. There is something deeper, more foundational, more fundamental underneath every decision we could ever make toward God. And John in his gospel labors long to show this to us. Um, in fact, uh, and we're going to be looking at different texts as we go through the entire uh, book of, the, of, of John, but he labors hard to show us that we are not bringing this out about by our own sheer will. For example, John 3, 3, um, I'm going to give you two examples and then lean on a third one here. He says that we can't even see the kingdom of God. We can't see it to walk into it unless we are born again, born from above. And in a few weeks or months, depending on how quickly or slowly we go through this, we'll get to that text and look closer at it. John 10, 27, Jesus says explicitly, the reason people don't, don't believe in me isn't because they're not clever or because they're not smart or because they're not wise or because they don't have enough evidence. The reason people don't believe in me is because they are not my sheep. That's what he says in John 10, 27. But John 6, the entire chapter, if I were to hold out one text that shows this clearest, all of that chapter, and we'll look into a specific aspect of it right now, but is probably the most compelling example of this reality in action. At the beginning of John 6, you all know this story. Jesus takes five loaves of bread and two fish, and he feeds 5,000 human beings at least till they are full and they don't want to eat anything. And that's an awesome thing. But he secretly ducks out, and he goes to Capernaum, where he's teaching in the synagogues. And all the people who were there who saw him do this get into boats, and they follow him. And they come to Capernaum, and they, they, they're asking him questions, and he tells them straight up, he's like, you didn't follow me here because you believe in me. You followed me here because I put food in your belly, and you want a king. You want a king. This isn't about you personally in God. This is about some political reality that you're trying to experience with the Messiah. And then he says to them, you need to understand this. I am the bread that came down from heaven. Come to me and you will never be hungry. Believe in me and you will never thirst. And he is in doing this, inviting them into his family. He's inviting them to become children of God. But then we get to verse 43. Here's their response. Listen to this. 6, 43. So the Jews grumbled about him, about Jesus, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. 
They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who is heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now, like these other passages we just looked at in John, we're going to get to this passage in due time, and we're going to explore all of chapter 6 in our journey through John. But right now, I want to just look at his response here. This response is wild. He tells them to stop whining, stop grumbling in their unbelief, their rejection of who he is. Now, why does he say this? Why doesn't he say something else? Like, I made the food, but guess what? You really need me. Stick with me. Forget the food. Why doesn't he say something a little bit more affirming to them? And the reason he says, stop your grumbling because of your unbelief is because he says here, no one can come to Christ and receive him for being the true light unless something happens. Unless the Father draws them. The Father must draw them, which implies that their grumbling is because he hasn't drawn them. Don't be surprised that you're grumbling. And he says here, he pulls a passage out of Isaiah 54, and he says um, that Isaiah 54 says that everyone, or that God will, uh, God the Father will teach them of them. You will learn from God. He says that they have not been taught by God. That's why they're grumbling here. Being taught by God, hearing and learning the Father is what it means in Jesus's view here to be born of God. That's the experience of being born of God. They are the same fundamental undergirding experience. In other words, the the, the experience you and I have of faith, and we know what this is, to trust someone, to trust Jesus. That experience we have of faith that leads to the right of adoption into God's family. This event, being born of God, is the foundation of that experience. It is essential in order for us to have faith. There is no faith in the human heart unless God inclines the heart of a human being to receive Christ. Which means that Jesus, this is why Jesus uses the word draw. This is why Jesus uses the language taught by God. He's saying that being born of God is what ignites faith in the heart of a human. How else could you believe? That's kind of what he's That's kind of the feeling that he has here. Why are you grumbling? Don't you know? How else could you believe? You can't do this on your own. And the reason he can say that is because they can't. This same experience that we see in John 6 is what Jesus is talking, or is what John is talking about in chapter 1. Not being born of the the blood of the will of the flesh or born of the will of man, but being born of God. Now, John, the apostle who wrote the gospel of John, has a few epistles. I'm going to read from 1 John 5, 1. Look at how he phrases this. 1 John 
5, verse 1. John says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. John here is saying that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, everyone who, who receives him and puts their faith and their confidence in his name have been born of God already. So in the Greek here, the perfect tense verb shows that the action of believing comes after the other verb, which is being born of God. That's what the Greek tells us. That's why it's translated in this way in the ESV. We only believe because we are born of God. And I know this is, this is hard because there's all sorts of implications that may be popping into your mind right now about what this means. And it's scary to think that we are actually in our sin, in our brokenness, this helpless before God. That even our faith isn't something we can just switch on like a light switch or manufacture in our hearts. But the scripture is clear. If you look at John 3.19, which we'll be going to, uh, in a, like I said, a few months, um, that says that when the light came into the world, the people loved the darkness. That was the response of the light of the world coming into the world is that people scattered into the shadows. They, they love the darkness. Now, why is that? It's because they're not in his family. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, a natural person does not accept spiritual things. They can't. In fact, Romans 8.8 goes even further and says that someone in the flesh cannot submit to God and cannot please God. It's impossible for them to do that. And what God is saying in John 1, stunningly, is that he says, I'm not going to let that stop me. Your addiction to the darkness isn't going to stop the light from infiltrating your soul and making you my child. That's what John 1.13 is saying. And this is what it means to be born of God. God doesn't give up. Not for a second. He goes right into the middle of all of our rebellion, all of our resistance, and says to that darkness, no, I will have my family and I will make it happen. And there is enormous hope in this because I'm going to be honest with you, just from my personal experience, my friends out there who do not believe in the gospel, my friends out there who, who, who don't, they, they hear this message of Jesus and they're like, ah, I don't know, I don't, I don't agree with that, it doesn't fit into my worldview. If they're left to their own wisdom and left to their own devices and left to their own discernment, guess what? They will never believe. They will never believe. But if you could tell me that somehow God could break into their hearts and that this light could obliterate the darkness that has got a stranglehold on their soul, that would be the greatest news in the world. And John 1, really the entire book of John, 
tells us that this kind of hope, it says this over and over and over again, this kind of hope really exists. God is really this strong. We are not left to our darkness. God steps into the darkness and he makes a family, which brings us back to Isaiah 43, which is where we began this morning. And uh, though this passage was written for the people of Israel initially who were in the darkness of exile, this text takes on its fullest meaning when we consider what John 1.13 says about us, that we are God's children. When we consider all of God's children scattered across the world, everyone there who is a believer in Jesus Christ. And so if your faith is in Christ, this includes you. And so I'm going to read Isaiah 43 again. And what I would really like you to do, now that we've looked at the reality by which God makes us his children, recognize that if your faith is in Christ Jesus right now, that you're his child and that he's talking to you. If you have to close your eyes as I read this to get everything else, including me, out of the way, Do it. Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 7. Thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. There isn't really anything I can add to this. If you have faith in Christ Jesus right now, God is talking to you. You are his child. And you are precious to him. And he loves you. And what we're seeing here is God's unwavering pursuit of his family across the entire world. This is why he says to the north, give up. This is why he says to the South, do not withhold. He's telling the world in his pursuit of his own children, I will not be denied my family. 
Doesn't matter the distance. Doesn't matter the darkness. He will have his family, period. That's why he says sons from afar, daughters from the end of the earth. There is nothing, hear me, there is nothing that will stand in God's way. Not of this. And this is why the light came in the first place. The light didn't just come to be seen and received. It did come for that. He did come for that. The light came also to die and by his blood ransom a people for his father from every tribe, tongue, nation in the world. This is Revelation 5. That's why the light came. That's what the light did. Christ, the true light, came into the very world that he made with his own hands and then had those hands pinned to a Roman cross in order for, John, for Isaiah 43 to be true about us. And in doing that, he paid for John 1.12's adoption to happen. He paid for John 1.13 being born of God to happen. Everyone who is born of God had this done for them on their behalf. The Father, through the cross of Jesus Christ, reaches into the darkness and shouts, do not withhold. He is my child. She is my child. And this is true about everyone who, as Isaiah 43, 7 says, was called by his name and who he created for his glory, which is where I want to close today. In a few moments, we're going to take the elements and we're going to participate in worship by celebrating communion, the Lord's Supper, where we are worshiping by celebrating and memorializing God's purchasing of this family with the blood of his own son. But I want to make one more observation about this passage, specifically Isaiah 43, verse 7, where God calls his sons and daughters who were created for his glory. This is remarkable on two levels. One level, God is telling us the answer to the most fundamental question ever asked. Why? This is the deepest and most profound question anyone has ever asked. Little kids ask this all the time. Why? Underneath all their whys, I had a little nephew once who just, everything was why, 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 why. At the bottom of the whys is this question, why? And this is the answer to this. We were made for his glory. There is nothing deeper than that. There is nothing higher than that. We were made for his glory. Every other reason and purpose you may have in your life for existing or doing X, Y, and Z can't even touch the hem of the garment of this purpose. We were made for his glory. But we also need to recognize that the glory of God isn't simply a reality that we pursue out here. The glory of God is the very light that penetrates the darkness in here, in our hearts. And God is, is saying here, he's not just saying, pursue my glory alone. He's telling us the reason for pursuing his glory, which we will do if we are his children, is that there is unrivaled joy found in his glory. There is unrivaled, matchless joy that the children have in who their father is. And this glory is the only source of true and lasting joy.
God is saying here, this is why I created my family. This is why I sent my son to die on the cross. This is why I broke into your darkness and said, enough is enough and took you as my son or my daughter, shining light into your heart so you would see his glory and so that you would believe that Jesus is every single thing that he's ever said he was. Our joy and God's glory are not separate realities. They're not separate experiences. In the family of God, they are one in the same. And they are directed to our Father. This is the very experience of being a child of God. This is, this, is, this is what John wants us to see in John 1 right here, is to know the joy of our Father. And Isaiah 43 is written in our Bibles specifically because God wants us to know this. He doesn't want us to be lost on what he feels about us, how he cares for us, how he loves us. This passage here is to show us the unblushing joy of being his child. And John's passage tells us how he brought it about. Let's pray. Father, even now I feel the inadequacy and the weakness of my ability to, to articulate the greatness of what is seen in Isaiah 43 and what is seen in John 1, 12 and 13. We need you to help us. We need you to show us this joy, this gladness, to show us your glory as our Father. And so I'm praying that as, as we prepare our hearts and as we worship you in communion and in the Lord's Supper and in taking the elements that are a picture of the light shining in darkness, that you would make war in us on anything that would obscure or block or impede our receiving of your great grace of the gospel our receiving of being born of God, seeing the wellspring of our faith and our adoption as coming from the hands of our Father who has pursued us from the very beginning and will not be denied. We need you to come by your Holy Spirit and to show us this, Father. As we worship, make these realities sink deep into our hearts and may they overflow in a fountain of gladness and joy for our Father who loved us and gave his Son for us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.